Hi, how are you doing? I hope you're ready for a very slight change of pace this week because I've got my bike back out of storage and we're going to go for a gentle bike ride. She's a Dawes Duchess and she looks exactly as you'd expect. She has a basket, a bell that rings. No things to make her look good because she doesn't need them. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through spring and summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode eight of The Stubborn Light of Things. The main reason I'm so pleased to have my bike back this week is that I'm in pursuit of a cuckoo. I know roughly where one is. I've been hearing it on and off um, for the last week or 10 days. But finding yourself in exactly the right spot in good recording conditions before it moves off to call from somewhere else is really tricky. So today I'm cycling around Suffolk's beautiful lanes edged with cow parsley and poppies, helping to bring you that quintessentially summer sound. This time last year, there was also a cuckoo in my village, as I recorded in my nature notebook for The Times. The Times Nature Notebook, May 2019. A little delayed by a cold north wind like many of our summer migrants, 30,000 or so cuckoos have now arrived back in Britain. One has set up shop in my village, his evocative two-note song echoing lazily across the water meadow all morning, issuing from a copse at sunset and encouraging us villagers on our regular litter-picking afternoon. A staple of the Times letters page for many decades For as little as seven weeks, cuckoos will be heard in those parts of our countryside where enough habitat survives to support them, in terms of both food sources, large hairy moth caterpillars, and the species in whose nests they lay their eggs. A declining red-list bird, research has shown that the UK's cuckoos follow two return routes to the Congo Basin after breeding, one of which, via Spain and Morocco, exposes them to greater mortality risk at their stopover sites. Add fast-declining moth numbers to the picture, and the real surprise is that we have any left at all. Given the widespread condemnation of nest predators such as magpies, which leads some bird lovers to trap and kill them, it's surprising how few harbour similar feelings towards the cuckoo, an obligate brood parasite whose offspring, once hatched in a foster parent's nest, set about heaving rival chicks and eggs out 
so that the hapless parents are not distracted from the mammoth task of rearing such a massive and hungry dependent. The fact that this natural but grisly process happens largely unseen in open countryside, instead of in the gardens and nest boxes we consider our personal protectorates, may have a great deal to do with it. Cuckoo's recent rarity also makes us more forgiving of their habits, and when they were more numerous, human attitudes were more censorious. Chaucer decried them as unkind and a murderer, and Shakespeare believed that fledgling cuckoos ate their foster parents. Even the scientifically-minded Gilbert White called their behaviour a monstrous outrage. Perhaps in these socially progressive times we have a greater tolerance for atypical family structures, but more likely it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. We're not always the best of friends being this bike, and I'm not completely convinced she's the right one for me. She's very, very heavy. Um, she's quite slow. She rattles and creaks <laughs> quite loudly. And her front end swings about like nobody's business. Anyway, I still don't want her to get stolen. Not that I think anyone would around here, but I shall look her up. When I was thinking about the best place locally to hear a cuckoo, I knew straight away that this was where I wanted to come. One of the local landowners takes a really great interest in nature and he manages his land really sympathetically. So there are really thick, dense hedges and there's lots of unmown, species-rich meadows and this whole patch is buzzing with life, with insects and with birdsong. I mean, the difference is so marked from the intensively managed agricultural land just on the other side of the road here. It's a privilege to own vast tracts of countryside. It's a privilege to own a tiny garden like mine that's mostly septic tank. But the stewardship of land can come it can be turned to such good I wish there were more landowners like this one this week's guest is the poet Will Burns who was a Faber new poet in 2014 and whose debut full-length collection country music has just come out from Offord Road books and it is beautifully designed it's a really lovely object I first met Will when we were both starting out um, via the wonderful Caught by the River website, where he was and still is the resident poet. And if you don't know Caught by the River, you've got a real treat in store. It's a rich scene of music and nature and culture, and it's given so many people in my world um, their first break. Will was in a band before becoming a poet, and he embodies the links between words and music. His collaboration with the electronic musician Hannah Peel, Chalk Hill Blue, is an extraordinary record. Hi, I'm here on my allotment in um, Buckinghamshire. I'm um, talking to you 
from a small canvas chair by my shed, having a little rest, as I often do, too often probably. Under normal circumstances, I'd probably just be sat here daydreaming, pretending I was thinking about something difficult or profound. I feel very strongly um, about this place, uh, about the village I live in in general, um, and about my little plot specifically. Um, I think about what Wendell Berry said about the process of gardening. Um, he said, if we apply our minds directly and competently to the needs of the earth, then we will have begun to make fundamental and necessary changes in our minds. I feel like these changes seem more urgent than ever over the last couple of years, um, as if the stewardship of the earth is more than ever um, an act that has profound implications. And it's easy sometimes to have doubts about the way you live, to know that you're lucky um, to have access to allotments, gardens, birdsong, um, hills. And for a long time I felt uncertain about all that, about the nature of that privilege and my politics. But at the same time, and especially this time of year, the demands of the plot, the demands of a garden, remind me that there are certainties as well as the doubts um, of, of thinking. There are certainties that come with living and that there is a real living to be done. Um, and with that work, uh, and I suppose on that note, I should uh, get back to the watering can and um, earthing up the spuds. In his piece just now, Will mentioned the discomfort of uncertainty, of not being sure about your politics, perhaps, or how your beliefs all integrate. I think learning to tolerate that discomfort, as Will has, rather than always trying to resolve it by simplifying things that are really complex, is an important skill. I also think that kind of discomfort is vital for creativity, that ability to see more than one possibility and live with or balance conflicting thoughts and ideas. Keats famously wrote in a letter to his brother about what he called negative capability, which he defined as when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. It means keeping your mind open and questioning everything and resisting tribalism and sometimes, even though it's painful, maybe especially when it's painful, letting your mind be changed. Tell me you just heard it.
really hard to pinpoint where they're calling from. I'm going to go back to the Duchess and cycle a little further up the road. Because there's another footpath that might get me a little bit closer. Of course, by the time I get there, he will have moved on. This has been the story of my life for the last 10 days. This week's poem is by Will Burns, who we heard from earlier. It's in his debut full-length collection, Country Music. I first heard him read it a couple of years ago in Bristol, I think it was. And not only is it perfect for this time of year, but it captures something of the feeling of change and uncertainty that's in the air at the moment. There's always something slightly held back in Will's poems, something deliberately unexplained that doesn't let you rest easy and I love that Guy strange that time of year when the maybugs come hard and thick and inky see them in the windows of the White Horse Hotel where they congregate or in the curbside dirt where they are groggy and dying to feel the evening coming up and to stream one way or another down the streets lined with hornbeam and dog shit. And then at once to feel all these things change, down to the angles of the earth itself, the nature of your work and all other men. To feel all that was certain cut and run under the folding steel, like garden birds that scatter from bird of prey. hopefully a little bit closer to wherever it was he was calling from. Even if I don't hear him again, it's such a pleasure to be out in the May sunshine. I know we're all really noticing nature even more than usual at the moment, but this feels like such a beautiful spring. I'm just going to head through this little wood and that will hopefully bring me out somewhere close. There. A female cuckoo specialises in mimicking the eggs of a particular species. And that specialisation has led over time to there being distinct races of cookies. I think they're called gens that specialise in the eggs of a particular bird. And they've been recorded as parasitising the nests of up to 50 British birds, but there's six species which are the main targets 
and they are Robin, Dunnock, Sedge Warbler, Reed Warbler, Pied Wagtail, and Meadow Pipit, the Mippet as it's known in birding circles. What I find really interesting is that the mimicry of the Dunnock's eggs is not very good. They're, they're not a close match at all, unlike the others. And that's thought to be because they haven't been parasitising Dunnock's for very long. So, so the arms race has not really got underway. There's been a huge amount of uncertainty around cuckoos. around cookies and their behaviour for as long as people have been studying birds. And it led to one of the fiercest debates in the annals of the British Ornithology Club in the 1920s. Isn't that wonderful? No one was really sure how the female cuckoo could lay her egg so quickly in just a matter of seconds. And we know now that she has an extrusible cloaca that allows her to squirt the egg out very fast. And they've even been known to lay eggs in swallow nests, which if you imagine a mud cup against the wall of a house is extraordinary because a cuckoo is a big bird. But none of this was known in the early years of the last century. And the debate polarised, headed up on one side by a reverend and on the other by a chap with uh, a very large ear trumpet And it sounds funny, but they had to be separated at British Ornithology Club dinners. One believed that the egg was laid in the normal manner. The other believed that she must lay it on the ground and then transport it into the nest in her beak. And even when firm evidence was produced in the form of a film Those on the side of laying on the ground wouldn't believe it. And it's funny looking back, of course it is, but I think about so many of our debates today and how bitter they are and how entrenched and how powerful it would be to just say, I don't know, and neither do you. We don't know. We may know one day, but we don't yet. Why are we so afraid of uncertainty? Why is it so uncomfortable not to know? 
another bird with a very distinctive song uh, and a song that's it's very hard to tell which direction it's coming from like the cuckoo is the grasshopper warbler which is now red listed but was a lot more common in Gilbert White's day as you're about to hear he also mentions the fern owl which is the nightjar uh, whose extraordinary churring nocturnal call is something I'm really hoping to record for you um, in a future episode, fingers crossed. May 25th, 1785. Woodruff blows. The prospect from my great parlour windows to the hangar now beautiful. The apple trees in bloom add to the richness of the scenery. The grasshopper lark whispers in my hedge. That bird fern owl and the nightingale of an evening may be heard at the same time, and often the woodlark hovering and taking circuits round in the air at a vast distance from the ground, while high in the air and poised upon its wings, unseen the soft enamoured woodlark sings. May 25th, 1790. Sowed a specimen of some uncommon clover from Farmer Street. Sowed a pint of large kidney beans, white, also savoys, cos lettuce and boar coal. May 25th, 1791. Mole cricket jars. An old hunting mare, which ran on the common being taken very ill, came down into the village as if it were to implore the help of men and died the night following in the street. May 25th. 1793. Cut down the greens of the crocuses. They make good tyings for hops, better than rushes, more pliant and tough. Well, the cuckoo has now moved away to call from another spot, but I'm so pleased to have finally recorded it. I can't tell you. It's time to get back on the Duchess and pedal home. Join me again next week when my guest will be the writer and biologist Amy Jane Beer and I'll be walking along the Sundapple River and thinking about water and memory.